1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show's latest foray into the Listener Questions Mailbag. On today's show, we're bringing fans from the stands onto the field. We're talking about Belgium's golden generation. And we're dredging up the Super League idea once again. Yay! My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me to talk about these questions and much, much more, Taylor Rockwell! Hello, my friend. It took
2: a lot for me to answer that Super League question with more than the Super League is dumb and I refused to answer this question. But I did. I did, uh, in the end, give, give an answer. But well, that is an answer I did itself. not love that one. Yes, so, yes, yeah, it is.
1: To be fair. Uh, joining us also with uh, equally succinct answers, Graham Ruthven. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you today? Very good. See, succinct. I told you, listener. <laughs> Joseph Lowry joining <laughs> us also. Hello. Hello. I'll be succinct too, like Graham. Hello. 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 All right. Introducing stuff. This is great podcast content here. Yeah, this is what
3: people want: succinct one-word answers on a list (laughs) of questions episode.
1: (laughs) Yes. If you want some of this uh, monosyllabic genius listener, please uh, head to patreon.com slash totalsoccershow where you can support this show if you wish to do so. We've got bonus episodes. We're going to have some bonus listener questions on there this week. In fact, we've got video content on there and access to our Discord. It's like a private fun Twitter just for us guys. It's fun. We like it a lot. Uh, Do join us there if you can. Once again, patreon.com slash totalsoccershow. Lots of listener questions have come in. Thank you very much, guys, for sending them in indeed. Let's get straight. To it with Tyler Cox, who has asked if IFAB instituted a new rule that states that every game must field 10 regular squad players and then you have to pull one fan chosen at random from the stands to play the game, which position on the field should the fan play for the least amount of damage to the team? Now, Joe, this is a tricky question in its nature. I instinctively went for what I deemed to be the most luxury position. Least damage, damage limitation position, winger.
3: Yeah. How do we nice. feel about well, that? That's my had been unless, doing with Anthony
1: this season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, unless you're like uh, the, the fan oh, coming from the stands is like Federico DiMarco banging in right. goals from uh, acute angles. But uh, how do you feel about that one?
4: Yeah, I, I, That's exactly my answer as well. I specifically have right winger. But to go back, I think you're just hoping and praying that you get one of the former player legends that's in the stand for your game on any <laughs> given Saturday. You're just hoping that there's that, you know, 0.1% chance that somebody that gets drafted into your squad is actually a really, really good soccer player. But so it, it, it was process of elimination for me for this to end up at winger. And so here is sort of my line of thinking to get to an actual answer to Tyler's question. So it's not goalkeeper. I have down in my notes, not goalkeeper, LOL. Like it cannot be goalkeeper. That is suicide. It is not striker either because that position is too important to finish off attacks. It's not anywhere central either, that space is too important, that is where games tend to be won and lost, teams prioritize attacking and defending through those areas as much as possible, that takes out any number 10s out there, that takes out uh, really a number eight or a number six or a striker, it also takes out the center back, and while we're at it, let's just go ahead and extend that all the way across the back line, I don't want random Joe Schmo from section 4D coming in and dealing with crosses into the box from anybody, so we're not doing that either, so all that's left at that point is the wide attackers, And I chose right wing because I figure my right back can get up and down and and they're more likely to be right-footed than the left back is to be left-footed. So there's like a tiny thing that swayed me specifically towards the right side. But I think it is absolutely winger. You lose a ton there. Like there's no way to spin it. You lose a ton there in the attack and you do become less dangerous. But I think if everybody's doing this, maybe you try to prioritize some defensive solidity and hope that your other side of your attack and your central players are enough to get the job done.
1: Taylor, who's, who's your 11th man? Where are they going in in the, in the formation?
2: I got to say, that's that's more or less a perfect answer from Joe Lowry. Uh, and I would say from experience of coaching a team, uh, an adult team that has people who have played a lot, has people who have never played, and has people who have played but like not recently, the instinct is to hide them at fullback. And you think, oh, we can have like good midfielders who get back, you have good center backs who can cover, you'll be fine. But the reality is that, any decent team is going to recognize, oh, that fullback can't dribble, can't defend, can't do anything. We're attacking that fullback And they also just came from section time. 12. <laughs> exactly. And they've probably had a few in the pub before the game. Uh, so uh, it, it is an immediate area of vulnerability, and you sort of have to... Cheat your whole defense over to help out. You have to have people coming back even deeper to help out. And it really throws off the game plan. Joe is is dead on, I think, at the same time, going the full red card route of removing a striker and just sort of playing like a 4 five, zero, I don't know how effective that's going to be. But I do think having a, a winger who maybe can surprise and maybe they'll make one good run and the defense has to pay attention to them a little bit more... It is worth it for not having to sacrifice that defensive solidity and then the ability to play through the middle. So I think uh, I had a winger and then I think Joe's reason for why you would want it to be your right winger makes a ton of sense. So well done, Joe Lowry.
1: Uh, well done, Joe Larry, Graham Rutherland, Uh Sterling Albion have been mandated to have this rule and you are selected to go onto the field. Where would you choose to go? It can't be in goal because you need to be holding the pie, obviously, so you need your hands <laughs> occupied. But where, where do you think?
3: Um, so the way Sterling Albion are, are playing at the moment, I might actually be an Im-, I'm terrible, but I might actually be an improvement on some of the players <laughs> who are playing for this team right now because we are in free fall this season. Um, but I would probably... So the two positions that I played as a teenager were right back and right midfield, and um, those are maybe the two positions where the two we highlighted. Would, yeah, yeah, the two positions. There might be something <laughs> in that, and um, because I had winger top of my list for all the reasons that have already been explained, and then fullback as my as my second choice. I accept Taylor's point that you can attack a fullback, but then you look at fullbacks in the modern game or more specifically these kind of hybrid defenders that we're not going to get one of these at Sterling Albion but um, Arsenal and City and Liverpool play these kind of hybrid central defenders fullbacks like Ben White and Gavardial and Nathan Ake and Akanji and Barcelona have Jules Koundé and Real Madrid have David Alaba so maybe one of those players could kind of cover for two positions and I could just kind of hide out at fullback which coincidentally is what I used to
1: do as a teenager All right did you answer the Sterling Albion question, though? You just...
3: Uh, I would play as a winger, because, as I say, Thank the way you. we're playing right now, that ball is never reaching me in a game. So, yeah, winger.
1: <laughs> and do we think, Graham, there's ever a scenario where if this happened, there is a scenario where the team actually sets up and uses the fan who comes on? Like, may- maybe... it's the, the fan the Thierry
4: right. Henry, that is the one situation. Right.
1: Well, are you, are, but, I mean, they're still going to be in the casuals, right? They're not going to even have... Yeah. Oh, I suppose they get cleats in it.
4: Well, that is a,
3: that yeah, that is an interesting point. Are they playing in, like, Timberland boots? Because I'm not sure <laughs> having them on the wing getting crossies into the box is going to be much use. It, Harry Redknapp famously once did this, right? In 1994, yeah, he he's West Ham manager at the time. West Ham are playing a, a, a friendly match against, I want to say Oxford, I think it was. And basically this West Ham fan was being very abusive and not very kind to the team. And so he goes over to the fan and says, right, come and play for his second half. He goes into the dressing room, they give him a kit, he comes out for the second half. That's uh, the kind of thing you don't really get in the Premier League now, Harry Redknapp, those, those sort of stories. How did that play out?
1: Uh, About as expected He didn't play for long The fan well, the it was Jermaine off.
3: Defoe And he went on to
1: have An excellent No <laughs> Can you imagine uh, Obviously giving the abuse And having Harry Redknapp Say that That's a funny situation But actually being the fan And going through it And saying yeah. Yep alright I'm going to suit up Here we go Let's do it
3: Yeah Would you do it though <laughs> Like if Wimbledon I'm, I'm afraid I don't really know Who the Wimbledon manager is But whoever the Wimbledon manager is Gave you the call Would
1: you go on Just to say you've done it uh, Firstly Johnny Jackson How dare okay, you He's go. very handsome Um I would not. I don't think I Yeah, I don't think... I would want
3: want to want to do it, if you know what I mean. But I don't know if I'd be able to go through with it.
1: Taylor, would you do it if you got the call-up?
2: I think if it was in the form of me having harassed the team the whole time and then getting the call-up, no, I would probably chicken out. But if they were just like, hey, we need someone to step in, I wouldn't mind giving it a go to see just how poorly it turned out because... Of course, the the delusional me would be like, no, I'm going to score a brace. And this is the start of my playing career at the age of 39 or
1: however old I am. (laughs) However, eh, give or take. Uh, Joe, um, Phoenix are there saying we're rising, but we're not rising hard enough. Lowry, you're in. What do you say? Yes or no?
4: I, I say yes. I think I'm actually taller than Rocco <laughs> Rios Novo. I know at least you, Ryan, and, and Graham are still their starting goalkeeper. So, you know, maybe there's something in me taking 12 seconds in goal. I, I would do it. I would also request, like, uh, two weeks to actually go and train, and I'm going to fly out and hang out with Bobby Warshaw, and he's going to yell at me, and I'm going to do a bunch of wall passes for two weeks. And that, I think, will, is going to tighten up my game just enough to go out and make me feel like I'm not going to embarrass myself quite as much as I inevitably will. But, yeah, I would totally do it. Why not? Joe's joe got a whole, like, Rocky montage journey yeah. for
3: himself going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Running up the steps with Bobby, shouting at him.
1: <laughs> I like it. Brings a whole new dimension to the question. Tyler, thank you very much for that indeed. Let's go to Guy Yedwab, who says, if you had to take over a club as manager and completely change its playing style 180 degrees using the same personnel, which team do you think will be most likely to succeed? So Taylor, I think we're looking for the most adaptable group of players, maybe the players with the most soccer intelligence, or maybe it's mm. a team who needed, you know, who are at a low ebb and need a turnaround here. Yeah.
2: I think the the honest answer is none because who am I? And I think anytime if like I just rocked up in the same way like me just getting thrown into a into a Premier League game would probably not go well. Me showing up at a pitch, me like, don't worry guys, I got this. My experience minimal. I coach ten year olds. We're gonna figure it out. I don't think I would get the buy in maybe necessary. But for sake of answering the question, I do think it's probably a team that has clearly shown that it has the ability, but maybe is past its cycle or just needs to change it up or maybe just needs the kind of Sean Deitch treatment. So I think you could go Union Berlin. If you wanted to just go very simple, we're playing a system, a, a simple style, we're playing uh, more focus on defense, and then we're going to move the ball in specific areas of the pitch in certain ways. That's I what think Union Berlin do already. Is that is mind. that not their thing? I, I think what I'm saying is like they, to me, would be a uh, a team that I look at as being just like it seems ready for the next step or a new manager to come in. That's, that's the only way I can explain how poorly this season has gone. So maybe that doesn't fully answer the question of have them playing an entirely different style. So then my only other option in that regard would be present day Napoli, maybe, who are not playing the expansive football or the cohesive football that maybe we've seen them play and i wonder if maybe just kind of empowering certain players certain leaders on the team but then also certain standout performers a team head in chief amongst them if that would go some way towards making a difference
1: that's interesting okay so joe taylor has gone the route of two teams you might need a change to turn things around what if it's like a man city where the t- the players are so highly coached and have the intelligence that they could just snap into a new system quick enough
4: Main City weren't my answer, but I I do think there's something to be said for them being adaptable because these players are very, very skilled and, and they're all elite players at the international level and end up doing a lot of different things on that side. And so it's not like none of these players have experience doing other things. My answer, and I feel pretty good about this, is Real Madrid. So there's a couple different ways you can look at this. There's one way you can look at it that says, well, under Ancelotti, they're all vibes, right? And so you could argue that turning them around stylistically just means giving them actual detailed tactical instructions to the level of a Pep Guardiola or an Ange Pasta or a Jurgen Klopp or whatever it is, right? That's one side. I don't necessarily buy into the Real Madrid or just vibes, even though they're a bit more vibesy than a lot of the other elite teams. I think for the most part, Real Madrid used the ball, and obviously that bears out when you go and actually look at the possession stats and a lot of the attacking stuff too. I think, though, they would also be elite doing a 180 and playing against the ball. If right now Real Madrid pass the ball a bunch, they control the ball in most games, and to answer the question, I'm flipping the script and saying, well, what happens if they give up the ball? And I think the answer is they're still elite because their players are really good, and if you want an elite team, that's the place to start. But I think about them having all these ball eaters in midfield. Chiuameni can track a ball down, can win it in midfield. Fetty Valverde, Jude Bellingham. We talked about Bellingham in detail a couple weeks ago. He covers a ton of ground and has that long, lanky stride. I think about, at the center back spot, them having players who have a ton of range, which helps them in the high line, but also helps you when you're playing deeper downfield. You can cover space in the box. You can deal with those little micro runs from opposing attackers. Rudiger and David Alaba both, I think, would be really excellent at that. And then you have the players to hit on the counter. In Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo, they're both very, very quick, very, very skilled on the ball. Obviously, Vinny Jr. would be the guy. Maybe in this case, you do toss Hosolu up on as the actual number nine and go with either a 4-4-2 with Bellingham still as that number 10, or you just go for a 4-3-3 that flattens out into a lower block and you blitz teams on the counter. I think Real Madrid are very, very adaptable, and you can see that in the players that they go out and sign. You can see that in how Ancelotti coaches. And I think shielding them or shepherding them, excuse me, in a direction they haven't gone to a ton because they're Real Madrid, I still think they would be really, really good.
1: I like that answer a lot. Graham, how about someone like Man United where you could actually give them a playing style and identity?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what their their style is. I guess maybe under, un, under Ten Hag they've been like a kind of counter-attacking team for some parts of the last two seasons. So I guess 180 from that is a possession-orientated team and I do not think they have the players to play that way. So I'm not sure Manchester United make it on to my list. I had Real Madrid on my list. I had Man City on my list as as, as well. Um, I kind of think City have the players to go full Sean Dyche, Burnley with Haaland up front and then wingers. And fullbacks whipping balls in and guys like Alvarez and De Bruyne and and whoever kind of picking up second balls. I'm not sure that would make the best use of their talent, but nonetheless, I think they could they could make that work. My my uh, primary answer, though, was PSG. So it feels like they have the potential to be the best counter-attacking team in the world. So right now, this season, it's all about Lucho Ball having 1 million passes per 90 minutes, but they've got players like Akar Fakimi, they've got Zaire Emery as as, as like a ball-carrying machine in the middle. They've got Usman Dembele, on the wing and oh they've got this guy you might have heard of uh, Kylian Mbappe the roadrunner himself so I'm envisaging mm-hmm. a lot of counter-attacking goals I am um, think Taylor will remember this goal Manchester United scored a goal against Arsenal in the Champions League a long long time ago where Mainet are in their own box one moment and then Park Sung has a little back heel into Rooney and then Ronaldo comes steaming forward and within literally about Nine. five seconds they've gone from one end to the other and scored. That's the sort of goal that I'm anticipating PSG could potentially score. Even someone like Kolo Moani would work in, in, in that sort of uh, system. So I think they're doing some good things with Lucho and Lucho Ball but yeah they could go 180 I think.
2: I like all those answers. Uh, Joe, I have one additional question for you. If the question were solely about MLS teams, which one would you choose?
4: Oh, wow. Uh, LAFC is the first one that comes to mind for me because they still have so many players that are really, really good on the ball. But under Steve Tarundula, they've gone almost, I don't want to say exclusively, but they've really transitioned into being more of a transition team. So I, I think you could tell them, hey, Chiellini is going to help you build the ball up from the back. You have two fullbacks who are very, very comfortable in possession. Ilya Sanchez comes from SKC, and he conducts a bunch of stuff from midfield. And then you have so many attackers that are really comfy in tight spots. I think if you actually gave them some Wilfred Nance-style coaching, they would be the best possession team in Major League Soccer.
1: Thank you very much indeed, and thank you, Guy, for the question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going Belgian. Back shortly. Welcome back to Listener Questions. Listener, Cam Tate has been in touch. Did the Belgium golden generation underachieve their true level? I believe, says Cam, that third at the World Cup was actually the best they could have done, and they were slightly overhyped. We found Roberto
3: Martinez's uh, burner account. Cam Tate, (laughs) inverted commas. Yeah, sure.
1: There he is, identified. Graham, it's, it's interesting. The golden generation tag is often an albatross in general isn't yeah. it so it's, it's a matter of perspective on what a golden generation is i suppose and and having to live up to it is uh, has its pitfalls
3: yeah you don't really want to be a golden generation i mean some golden generations do fulfill their potential i feel like france have done a a a couple times but yeah the Belgium the Belgian golden generation as Cam says uh, their best performance was third at the 2018 World Cup in Russia they don't make it out of the group stages in Qatar and I think we can say that that golden generation has now um faded or disappeared in some cases a lot of those players in Hazard have have retired and they're they're trying to build something uh, new under Dominico Tedesco I um I don't I don't necessarily hold that so I, I would probably say that they did generally underachieve. Um, But I don't necessarily hold the 2018 World Cup performance against Belgium because they lost to France, who had an unparalleled amount of talent at that tournament, and then they went on and and won it and they destroyed Croatia in the final... I think it's more that there weren't more runs or performances like that over the course of their golden generation. So, if we consider that golden generation to span four, possibly five tournaments, if we're spanning it to, if we're stretching it to uh, Qatar, um, th- those were tournaments that Belgium could have made a real impact, and they only made it past the quarterfinals once. And yes, of course, you have to get a good draw and knock out soccer is like that but one of those times they lost to Wales at Euro 2016 and I think I think by the time you get to the 2022 World Cup and um, it's certainly true that that squad isn't good enough to win a tournament so maybe stretching it a bit far by going to five tournaments but 2016 was right in Belgium's sweet spot pretty much all their big stars are at that peak at that moment so if you look through that squad it was incredible they had Thibaut Courtois, Thibaut Courtois at Chelsea Tongen and Alderweireld are in the the Pochettino years at, at, at Spurs. You have Moussa Dembélé as well, who's one of Spurs' key players. De Bruyne has just joined Manchester City. Hazard, Ed- Eden Hazard, I should say, is at his peak. Fellaini is doing something at Manchester United, but nonetheless, he had his he had his uses. And the only team with a better squad at this tournament was was France and Germany. I would say I went back through all the squads and looked at them, and they're on the other side of the bracket in that at that tournament so I I know that's I know that's harsh to say well you fail in one specific tournament in 2016 so I'm calling you a failure but that's kind of the way it works with major tournaments it's such a small sample size and we have to make a judgment somewhere so I would say generally that they um they did underachieve 2018 probably was as best as they could have hoped for at that world cup but they needed a couple other runs like that and that never really materialized
1: Okay, so Taylor, what do you think about that? Did they underachieve their true level by by the nature of the question, uh, should they have made a World Cup final in
2: 2018? Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other, but I think I landed on uh, agreeing with the idea that they did not underachieve, specifically because we're talking about Belgium, a population of uh, under 12 million, and then you look at
3: somebody like Turkey who have 85 million as a population, is that not a different mm-hmm. question, though, Taylor? Like, I take that point. Is that not a different question, though? I take that point, but is Cam's question not about the golden generation, like the team itself, underachieving rather than yeah. like the country underachieving? I think what I'm saying is that for them to have built that team with the
2: limited population and the historical grievances that always plagued that team, it, it is sort of... I think then they became the dark horse that everybody selected as the dark horse that then became the favorite because everybody selected as a dark horse. And then when they didn't live up to that hype, it's seen as, Oh, they underachieved. They didn't achieve what we all expected, but I don't think we all had huge expect expectations on them before that generation. And so I think in some ways the raising of estimations, the raising of expectations is itself a sign of how much that team was able to come together, how good they were on the day but I think also it's a team that, to my knowledge, was playing four center, back, four center backs across the back four pretty regularly. They didn't have uh, much in the way of attacking fullbacks uh, or strong enough wingbacks to make things work. They had Yana Carrasco playing four different positions in one game. And I think though they had a ton of talent in certain areas, I don't feel like they had the quality of talent across the board to, to truly make that jump to have justified the expectations, So in some ways, I do think third, well, certainly not what they would have hoped for, is also a sign of how good that team did end up playing.
4: Yeah, I, I think Cam is right here as well. Although, Graham, I, I agree with your point about them underperforming at times, right? Maybe I'm just more willing to zoom out and say the good largely outweighs the bad and the achieving properly largely outweighs the the brief moments of underachieving. And you're right. Some of the Euros, they made the quarterfinals, the Euros in both 2016 and 2020. Qatar was very poor, towards the tail end of that generation, and maybe you don't count that. But overall, I think they pretty much nailed the expectations in as much as you can nail that in international soccer, where so much of it, like it or not, is a crapshoot. And if you have one game where you're not at 100%, you you might get through anyway, and if you have another game like that, you might not. And some teams go through on those, and some teams do not, and there is, at times, it doesn't seem particularly merit-based, right? So I think Cam was absolutely right. I also think it's worth spotlighting like who actually is in this golden generation, just in case anybody out there doesn't doesn't know. Larmou Lukaku fits into this category, Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne. Those are the three main characters of this generation. They all start with the Belgium national team between 2008 and 2010. And then alongside them, you have Thibaut Courtois, who's probably the next main character. And then Vertonga, Vertonghen, Mertenskram, you mentioned uh, some of the other squad there. They completely changed soccer in Belgium. So this Belgium national team had missed the World Cup in 2006 and 2010. They hadn't made it past the round of 16 in 2002, 1998, 1994, and 1990. So they they were not a really good soccer team. They were not a powerhouse by any stretch of the imagination. And they end up having a lot of success, right? Let's not forget... This is a golden generation relative to Belgium, though. It's not a golden generation like they have all the best players in the world in their squad at the same oh, time. Oh, I don't know. There was
3: a time when it felt like every young player breaking through was Belgian. Like, it, it, I don't, there was definitely like a couple years.
4: And taking it one point. step further, it felt like every
2: young Belgian breaking through was a hazard.
3: I,
4: <laughs> that, that second part I agree with. The first part I, I can't get behind, Graham. Like, you look at this this Belgium squad and their history, I, I don't think you can ever say this is a wildly better team than France, Germany, England, Spain, Argentina, and Brazil. Maybe at times they were the best team. Maybe only slightly, though. And other times they're they're just not. They're sort of in that top pack. I think making a, a quarterfinal at a World Cup in 2014, making the semifinals in 2018, like that is right on. Being one of the top eight, top four, top three, whatever teams in the world at any given moment, that to me feels like achieving right at your level.
1: Um. I should point out that Cam's question was actually about the first Belgian Golden Generation in 1986 <laughs> who also made the World Cup semi-finals. So you've all failed the assignment. That's just to fair.
2: Say. I, think, I think maybe where I'm also struggling with this one, and maybe this adds more clarity, is just that like I don't think they underachieved in terms of what they actually accomplished. But I think of my memories of that team, and they are memories of frustration. And so that is where I would say that maybe they didn't live up to the hype to some extent that there was like, we talked about Chelsea on weekend review yesterday and about how they kind of, they weren't really backing down from Man City. They were trying to make things. They were, they were going at them. They were playing this aggressive brand of football that led to them scoring four goals. And I feel like Belgium, I, I don't really remember them playing that way. I remember being frustrated by them being tentative and not getting very many good chances and, occasionally there would be good performances or good adjustments that made them even better than they'd been playing. But I don't remember them being the kind of vicious, ridiculously good attacking outfit that I would have expected. And so I think it's a strange thing of they played good enough football to make it to the World Cup to make it out of the group to make a run to finish third. And at the same time, I feel like because they never had those performances that truly entertained, that truly electif- electrified, they don't really stand out in my head i remember certain moments like i said but not like oh man that one game where they just played that team off the pitch they don't stand out in that way
3: what what are the big belgium wins from this period i would say there's one that does stick in my mind and that's the the win over brazil in the quarterfinals of the 2018 world cup and that's the tournament i've already said that is that is you know that's a good to finish third of that tournament i wouldn't have expected them to get any further that is an achievement but I just look at the particularly the attack of this team where I'm, where I'm looking at the lineup right now from the 2016 defeat to Wales. And they've got Eden Hazard, who at the time... I love is the... how much you hate that loss to Wales. <laughs> I do, yeah. I certainly, I absolutely do. I really <laughs> resent that Wales made it th- as far as the semi-final in that tournament. But anyway, putting my own personal uh, feelings and insecurities aside, uh, they've got Eden Hazard, who at that time is the best player in the Premier League in 2016. They've got Kevin De Bruyne, who, uh, as I say, has just joined Manchester City, is about to become this, the the centre of a Pep Guardiola team. They've got Lukaku up front. I know you fired shots at Yannick Carrasco earlier earlier, Taylor, but there was a time when Carrasco was, like, good for Atletico Madrid. He's, he starts oh, on the right side. And Dries like... Mertens to come off the bench as well.
1: Like, that is an oh, incredible yeah. attack. Love Dries Mertens.
2: I didn't mean to fire shots at Carrasco. I think what I was trying to say was that, like, when you have him plugging holes in a number of areas because you don't have other players who can do that job, so he is, like, starting at left wing but then being asked, asked to be, like, a left back, and now he's a right back for the final 15 minutes. To me, that showed that there wasn't the depth from top to bottom that he had to do so many different things. And as I recall, so much of their success was basically plugging him in in the right spot, allowed them to play better football. But I don't know if that, to me, is the sign that like it's a golden generation gelling and playing particularly well. Yeah, Uh, That Brazil game is the one, I think, that stands out, by the way, Graham, to your original question. Maybe the third place game over England as well.
3: I don't remember third place games at any tournaments, particularly particularly ones involving England. But uh, yeah, I just, it's not the fact that I think Brazil, eh, Brazil um, Belgium should have won a World Cup. Um, I just think there should have been more instances where I felt like they were in that top bracket of teams, and only once really did I think they were. So that's that's an underachievement for me.
1: All right, thank you very much, Camp, for that question. We go now to Clay W. Clay Dubs. Let's say the Super League is set to commence next season with only 10 teams from any league or federation which teams would you choose to be in the Super League and where would they finish at the end of the season alright Graham here's my list you want to hear it go for it Real Madrid and Barcelona uh-huh. Juventus the ringleaders PSG I'm putting in there Man City Chelsea Man United Liverpool Bayern and one of the Milan teams flip a coin 10
3: so you've gone for, like, an actual Super League of teams, whereas my answers are more like nonsense Super Leagues, so we took this question
2: in <laughs> very boy, different Graham. directions. That a boy,
4: <laughs> Ryan, what was, Ryan, can I ask, what what was the, yeah. sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, what was the motivation behind picking some of those teams? Like, do you think those are the 10 best teams in the world right now? Because that's kind of what I tried to do, or do you, like, like, what was the motivation? Ryan, just very quickly, can you give us them
3: again?
1: Yes, yeah, sure so so from spain we've got madrid and barcelona basically the rationale is that uh, a healthy mix uh, of teams across the top five uh, leagues in europe and those those who are a bit more hungry for the super league are favored i would say so uh, madrid and barcelona from spain uh, juventus and one of the milan teams psg uh, uh, by Munich who I know are not interested in this kind of behaviour but I'm putting them in there for the sake of the exercise uh, and then from the Premier League City, Chelsea, Man United and Liverpool
3: City,
4: Chelsea so no Arsenal in there no, no. why on earth are Manchester is, United that in that Super League that is the one I do not under- <laughs> do not understand
3: well uh, yeah are you are you picking this on the, the best quality teams or no. like the clubs because Manchester it's United a- I think are you know one of the three biggest clubs in the world
1: but it's a mixture of ambition who I think would accept the Super League and who I should should be there based on like coefficient and like a healthy mix of all the leagues. Basically, no clear rationale, I would say, but <laughs> just big teams who should be there. That's my thought.
3: Yeah, I like I like the uh, the selection of one of the Milan teams, like whichever one yeah. just
1: turns up first. They get the game. Let's they say uh, in- internationally because they're traditionally more international.
3: OK, are they or is that just the name?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's why they got <laughs> okay, the name. Sure. <laughs> yeah.
3: fair enough
1: all right graham what's your what's your what's your list let's hear it okay
3: so i've got a few suggestions so i i kind of love a super league (laughs) i kind of love a super league of all the big clubs in world football that are bigger than the domestic leagues that they play in so i want rivalries as well so i'm thinking celtic rangers for starters then boca (laughs) juniors and river plate let's have the two big Turkish clubs in there as well Galatasaray and Fernabachi, maybe Shad Corinthians right, two, cool, two, cool. Yeah, so okay. before I anticipated that and I went and looked at average attendances and Besiktas <laughs> have 20,000 average attendance and Fernabachi and Galatasaray are like in the 40s Whoa. and 50s so I anticipated that Taylor well. I'm sticking yeah, with you're a coastal Galatasaray it, but... and Fernabachi. <laughs> Corinthians on Pal- Palmeiras maybe and then Ajax go. and Feyenoord and uh, and and that's 10 or a sort of similar idea but slightly different we make a big sixth a big sixth league in Europe made up of all the stragglers who are who are big clubs but not in a big league so Celtic Rangers Galatasaray Fernabachi, Ajax Feyenoord PSV Benfica Porto Sporting Lisbon that's 10 all of a sudden we have a, that, that a, feels a,
1: very Europa League by yeah. the way <laughs>
3: this is called the Who cares Super League is that correct <laughs> <laughs> I quite like this idea I would watch this league alternatively the best badge Super League so the 10 clubs were the best badges in world football so I'm going for you, you thought the last league was the who cares Super League 1860 Munich Aberdeen Ajax Barry with their crazy chicken Hamburg Heron Vane yes. with the, the Love Hearts the, <laughs> the, the, the Seattle Sounders in their new badge which is fantastic uh, Kaiser Chiefs the South African club not the mid 2000s uh, British band Newell's Old Boys and Pumas (laughs) I'd buy all the merch from all those 10 teams
4: Graham I thought it was the 2000s British band and then you clarified and I I realised it was the soccer team that was very helpful (laughs) Joe's
1: Joe's a big fan I think um, my favourite of your picks there is the uh, dual rivalries from within the same leagues I think that's the one that would have the most fire within it wouldn't it
3: yeah I I would watch that league I mean maybe that's just me I was watching uh, Swedish top flight football at the weekend but there we go
1: (laughs) All right, Taylor, where did you land with this one? Uh,
2: Somewhere in between. uh, I did kind of lean in the Ryan direction of what I think the Super League would be. Uh, So I had Bayern, I had Real Madrid, I had Barcelona, Inter Milan, uh, Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal. Uh, But then my two wild cards uh, would be, I had Palmeiras as well, because if we're going to go Super League, let's get the Copa Live champions in there and see how they fare. And then because people are going to be so vehemently opposed to the formation of the Super League, you got to do like... A little bit of work to get people on board, so I'm throwing Shakhtar in there. And we're going to put Shakhtar Donetsk into the into the Super League as an immediate way to be like, hey, here's a ton of money, ah. uh, and you all immediately get some goodwill and a lot of exposure. Yeah. And I feel like that would be a good way to cover some of the fact that we're establishing a Super League.
3: The old uh, Spain-Portugal World Cup bids method. Yes,
2: Exactly. <laughs> uh yeah, totally
1: very good joe how did you feel about this one and bear in mind we have to pick where the teams will finish at the end of the season oh my my instincts is just to say whoever finishes highest in the Champions league currently probably is gonna win this but what do you say
4: yeah so i i have my teams in order of ranking and i i i'm surprised i'm the only one of the four of us that tried to pick the best teams but i guess the super league originally wasn't all about the best teams at all right and so there is tottenham absolutely are in some... it joe tottenham are in it I just distinctly remember and – they're still in my list, by the way. I just distinctly remember when all three of you guys were doing the Super League show, and I think I was on vacation for a weekend, and I was like, man, this is just so nice to not be doing this show right now, trying to deal with all the muck (laughs) of the Super League. So I don't maybe have quite the same vitriol and anger towards it. So I I went for the 10 best teams. Manchester City are number one in the standings. I've got Bayern Munich as the second team. I have Real Madrid third right now. Then I have Arsenal fourth, Barcelona fifth. PSG sixth, Liverpool seventh, Inter eighth, Tottenham ninth, and Bayer Leverkusen tenth. So that is my list. No, I I don't know that that still holds all the way with some of the recent Tottenham injury news. They probably get bumped out of of the top ten right now. But if we can imagine these squads are close to fully healthy, I feel feel pretty good about that list.
1: Yeah, as Graham said, if you're snapshotting current form, Girona should be in there as well, right?
4: Nope, not I'm not snapshotting current form whatsoever. I'm snapshotting the best teams okay. in Europe and Girona are not among the ten best teams in Europe.
3: Well
1: the huh. table never lies. Yeah. I was gonna say the league table suggests they might be Joe.
4: <laughs> yep. Yep, that's <laughs> also, I mean that's totally possible. If only if only the also, table didn't ever lie, see Leicester twenty fifteen and a bunch of other examples as well.
3: Also, Manchester United statistically are the most informed team in the Premier League right now. They've got more points over the last five games than anyone else. So make room for Jerome and Manchester
4: United in your Super League, Joe. We all have vastly (laughs) different ways of defining which teams are actually good. One of my ways is watching the games. I don't know if you guys are doing any of that. Uh, But Manchester United are not in my top ten, unfortunately.
2: I don't know how this could work because I don't know if you get ten teams exactly. But it would be fun to find a team that is the best representation of certain styles of football. And then put them all into a league and see who ends up winning. My assumption would be the defensive counter-attacking team ultimately wins in a competition like this. But to have a, a high pressing team, a tiki taka possession team, a a bunkered Sean maybe it's Everton with Sean Dyche thrown in there, and we see how that goes. Uh, I think that could be kind of a fascinating way to approach this as well.
3: What what about like a tactical draft where we have ten managers with different styles? So we have like mm-hmm. Beelsa, Sean Dyche. Uh, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, and then we allow them to like draft a team, kind of like what PK's is doing with the Kings League, but you know, better and more interesting. Is that the balloon thing? Yeah, where is the balloon? The Kings League. The is. The <laughs> squad.
0: yeah. Okay, um, yeah.
1: we, the, just, or I we just have PK's the balloon thing, thing is Cup. called
2: a tax dodge, but I could be wrong on that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, hello.
1: Uh, I, I think Graham uh, in that Simeone just wins an Atletico Madrid winning Taylor scenario. one and that's runs down the
3: tunnel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that wonderful stuff all right clay thank you very much for that question and for reminding us that the super league was a thing and it's probably going to be a thing when it comes back in a year or two fun yeah. times ahead uh let's take a quick break when we come back we're talking clemson tigers what back shortly
0: looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone
1: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to Sean Rosales, who says, Recently, a man named Tyler made national news in the college football world when he was critical of the Clemson Tigers head football coach, Dubbo Swinney. My question... Why doesn't this happen in the world of football? Are managers not faced with the same media or fan scrutinies in the public forum? And would it be better for some managers to be as honest as Darbo was in his rant? And if you haven't seen this, listener, um, feel free to go find it. Uh, Clemson's Darbo saw any, uh, a five minute rant against uh, after Tyler from Spartanburg, Spartanburg, South Carolina, where they make the BMWs, Graham. Fun fact for you there. Um, he asked him about uh, salary. Yeah, <laughs> Graham, if you buy a BMW in the US, they let you go to the Spartanburg factory and you can like use their track. It's very cool. I've not done it, but I've okay. heard it's cool. Yeah, anyway. Uh, I, I, I digress. Uh, Thomas with his five-minute rant against Tyler from Spartanburg. He asked him about salary. asked him about the record on the season. Jo- Joe, it's an interesting question because I do think that soccer managers do face scrutiny, and they can even face it from fans. They can even face it from... You know, they can even answer back. This made me think of when um, the Talk Sport, which is a properly UK radio station where they have sort of sports chat in the mornings and the afternoons and so on. uh, They were talking about Frank Lampard once as a manager and criticizing him. And then Frank Lampard phoned in and defended himself. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, right. So I've always really admired that. So it makes me think that this kind of scrutiny, this kind of fan interaction does happen, Joe, in the beautiful game as well.
4: I think it does happen. And first of all, I enjoyed you explaining talk sport um, in detail. That was I, was, I think, helpful for me and for listeners as well who, who couldn't figure out what talk sport was. Um, I just think the exact methods of how this happens is is a bit different from sport to sport and, frankly, from, from coach to coach. Like, it's not like every college football coach out there is hopping on a talk radio show every Tuesday and taking callers. Like, that, that doesn't happen. So, yeah, I, I guess to Sean's question, maybe to his point... I don't see a lot of soccer coaches going out there and publicly you know, answering questions from fans. I don't think that happens very often at all, but yeah. there is public scrutiny. I think the forum, though, changes a bit. Like we're talking about your car getting stolen and Ultra is leaving messages for you in the case of uh, Spalletti with Napoli and they returned his car only on the condition that he leave the club and when he left the club, they returned <laughs> the car. Like this, this stuff happens. The scrutiny is real. It just might not happen in exactly this kind of way. But managers do talk with the public. Luis Enrique had a Twitch stream going on around the World Cup. You have Greg Berald, they're hopping on a podcast. Like, these things do happen. They just maybe all happen slightly differently from coach to coach. Even within the same sport, they happen differently.
3: Yeah, so first of all, I had questions about the format because I listened to the clip of uh, mm. Dabo Swinney, not a real name, surely, uh, and it seems like he's on <laughs> a radio show taking calls from from fans like he's manning the phones for like a charity telethon or something like that, and that is unusual to me. So I, I take your point, Ryan, that certainly football managers um, are scrutinised and there is engagement with fans, but I can't really think of a format where a manager is... In a studio, taking calls from from fans from like a random caller. So that was my first question. I'm not. Mm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a college football fan. Is that is that something that happens in college football, or is this also an exception that you would raise an eyebrow at? Joe's pointing at the latter. So. Yeah. I. I, <laughs> I, I, don't <laughs> I don't
4: know. I don't. I don't watch a ton of college football. I used to growing up. I watched a lot more. And my understanding, like I said earlier, is that this isn't a super common thing. I know Nick Saban will hop on. And do some some media stuff, and he'll be on different shows. Yeah, Dabo Sweeney very clearly the same. I think some of the big names will do this kind of stuff, and and they're sort of the rulers of their school, like and of their town. That. so there's some authority yeah. here that I think can be enjoyable if you're in that position. But I, like like I said, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, as far as I'm aware, I don't think this is the the norm necessarily. I mean, he says it in that. Sort of response that like
2: I've had these successes. I've had this many winning seasons. Where was Clemson before I came in? I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I think the overall point that I came away with is that when you are an institution and when you have a ton of support and goodwill you have the luxury to respond in this way. And I think Nick Saban is a very good example of that, Joe. Going back a bit like Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech, after he has the kind of breakout season he has when Michael Vick was his quarterback, from that moment on, he could basically do anything and no one's ever going to fire him. And Tech becomes a, a, more of an institution in Virginia as a result. And I think like college football sort of lends itself to that. Steve Spurrier had that at Florida as well. I think in other sports, you don't have some of that stability. And I think college coaches at more volatile programs certainly aren't going to go on radio shows like this and answer calls in the way that Dabo Sweeney does because they don't have the background. They don't have the record. They don't have all of the support and love so that it really quickly becomes a thing that I think you can sort of like like hoisted by your own petard, like you can kind of hang yourself with this. And and an example would be me paraphrasing him saying like, I did this, I did that. I don't know if he would agree that that's what he said, but that was sort of my takeaway. And I think that's what would happen if you had this more consistently is that coaches will get taken out of context. Their their remarks will be sort of pulled and put in a vacuum and then they'll look really, really bad. And ultimately, I think it has an air of like the Kevin Keegan effect about it when he famously has that rant when he's the Newcastle manager and then they go on to to lose the title race. and And I think there is a feeling of if you sort of – lose it and go on a rant in public and it, and it's captured by cameras or recorders or what have you, maybe it can work out and motivate motivate the fan base. But equally likely is that you come off sort of unhinged and
3: angry. Yeah. And so I think that's why you don't get nearly as much of that in most sports, I should add. So that was my next question, right? So I I, I know nothing of the context of this story. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm only just familiar familiarising myself with uh, my new mate Dabo. Um, I'm not sure he <laughs> comes across well in this. Is that just me? Like, because I no, he doesn't don't think, come across well. No, yeah, not at all. right. Sure. So I I I just think coaches or managers attacking fans, even if they are yeah. in the right, is just generally not a good look. Or players as well. Like we spoke about in the weekend review, Kieran Trippy are... Arguing with a, a a Newcastle fan, I think mm. Kieran Trippier kind of has a point. There's a lot of injuries right now. That team has come a long way in in the space of a season and a half. It's still my reflex reaction is oh Kieran Trippier maybe shouldn't shouldn't be doing that with with a fan. So I, I just don't think Dabo comes across very well here. Yeah, and and I think that that sets it up for like okay, so let's say he did come across well. Let's say
2: he. He kind of goes through some plays as to why things haven't been working. This was supposed to happen, and and it doesn't come off. He was supposed to run this route, and he doesn't run that route. On the one hand, you are explaining the game in a way that probably makes it more accessible. People can process it. People can understand what's supposed to be happening and why it's not happening. But inevitably, within that explanation, you are saying, oh, the quarterback underthrew. Oh, the the receiver was supposed to run an out route. He ran an in route, and that's just a thing that he's got to get right. Again, right there, you are publicly blaming your players for not doing the right thing. And most coaches, I think, recognize, especially at college level, that these are still kids. These are still sometimes teenagers, oftentimes teenagers. And that publicly pointing out their flaws and their failings and their shortcomings is not going to motivate them. And that's why you have so many coaches complaining about officiating and complaining about VAR and complaining about things that allow them to complain about the game without having to spotlight individuals. Sometimes you want to blow up. A player to kind of light a fire. But but I, I do think either way, you really quickly are going to run into a question of saying, hey, why do, why do y'all suck this season? Why does your quarterback suck this season? And no matter how enlightened or informed of a response you give, to some extent, if you give a really informed one, you're being too charitable. But I think at the end of the day, you're going to run into some problems. And I think the ultimate takeaway from this is that just Tyler's shouldn't be allowed to ask questions. I think that really is the important thing. And yes, this listener question episode began with a Tyler asking a question. So I'm aware uh, that that maybe we that's a you, controversial Tyler. thing to say. But in the in the global feud between Tyler's and Taylors, I'm just saying no Taylor has been dressed down by Dabo Sweeney as far as I know.
1: Wow, <laughs> we wow, need to the Taylor Tyler Reed. The archive. <laughs> I never knew Taylor. that was a thing. Yeah. Uh, Graham, I'll say on the on the uh, subject of fans or players uh, having arguments with fans i think the king of that and positive examples possibly are harry redknapp yeah um who yeah. as we mentioned on a weekend review uh once in a friendly game pre-season friendly a fan was giving him so much abuse that he invited him onto the field to play in the second yeah. half <laughs> and, uh, and also there's a very famous example which yeah. you can see on youtube did, did we answer uh, that
2: earlier <laughs> well, i like that you're bringing that up as that we didn't talk about that earlier in this show
3: ryan you're giving away that we're recorded back-to-back <laughs> episodes in one day <laughs>
2: i thought i was in a different show anyway um (laughs) first question from today (laughs) from tyler no less see don't
4: take
1: questions from tyler's let's blame him okay fine um but the other example harry redknapp would be uh, the the fan forum with the lampard thing where he brings his nephew frank lampard into the team as a teenager a fan says he's not good enough why are you doing this it's nepotism and he goes on this sort of it's not quite a rant. It's like, a, he is very good. He's going to play for England one day. He's going to be a top, top player. And uh turns out yeah. Redneck was He's right. going to
3: be a legendary footballer. Just not not for this club, of course. But, yeah. you know, one day he'll be good
1: <laughs> and you'll see. Indeed. All right. right. Let's. Uh, thank you very much for that question. Uh, no, I'm going to have to stop there. I've lost the name of the person. I'll scroll through my notes too much. Sean, Sean. it was Sean. Sean. All right, Uh, Sean, thank you very much for your question. As always, (laughs) we have one final question here from Nick Tewell, who says, could you all go into a brief history of the show for the purpose of new listeners? Personally, I came along right around the time of Daryl's passing and have always been curious as to how the show started, uh, how it became what it is today, and the backgrounds of the current co-hosts. Thank you for all that you do, says Nick Taylor. The floor Mm -hmm. is yours. Uh, yeah, I,
2: I can run through the abbreviated history. I'm really interested in y'all's experience with the show and, and coming on board. But uh, the the quick history would be I met Daryl in 2008 playing uh, adult soccer here in Richmond. Uh, he was running the offside at the time. He needed someone to write about Manchester United. So I started uh, doing that. And then from there, he talked about wanting to launch a podcast, which was still relatively new, as an industry uh and so we started uh as a radio show that we then released as a podcast in 2009 Uh, that show had to be i think a maximum of 27 minutes and 30 seconds so the podcast became like the kind of longer form of the radio show Um, and then we added two co-hosts pretty quickly uh, albert and josh they were with the show until i left for turkey in 2011 daryl kept the show going with a few other co-hosts in there peyton ryan laura a few other people uh, deputizing on occasion. When I moved back to the States in 2013, uh, it was kind of me and Daryl again. And then 2014 for the World Cup, we decided we would do very lengthy previews. We'd cover every single game and sort of see what the response was. And if it felt like we were gaining momentum, then we would keep the show going and make it daily. If we weren't, then we were going to kind of end it there. And we got a really good reaction. We got a lot a lot of sort of voluntary donations because we hadn't taken any money until that point uh and it felt like a thing that we could do more permanently so then i moved back to richmond and the two of us made it our full-time gig and we did it five days a week we launched soccer 101 in there as well um and then daryl was diagnosed in january of 2019 i believe um and had colon to liver cancer uh which he He dealt with in a number of different ways, including having to go, I think, every other week to Boston for an experimental treatment. And it basically just became impossible for him to do the rigors of the show. Because even though it is just sitting in front of a mic talking about soccer, there are harder jobs to have. Certainly, it is still a time commitment. And especially weekend review, you're having to watch a ton of games. You're having to kind of like make the notes, keep everything in your mind. It just becomes difficult, especially with all the other games that we were then covering. So Ryan came in. Uh, to to host those episodes, and it was myself and Ryan. I think Graham joined us later on. Graham had previously been our La Liga consultant, uh, one of two Grahams to talk about La Liga on this show, but Graham Ruffin is the better one. Uh, and then Joe uh, was involved from an MLS US <laughs> standpoint, and then it became me and Joe uh, talking about US games. So that's sort of the very abbreviated uh, history. And then along the way, we kind of landed on the style of... Uh, you have to be able to explain why what you're saying is what you're saying you have to kind of be able to back it up if you're just sort of shooting from the hip and talking out of your butt uh, you're going to get called on it and so I think with that the show sort of grew into a show that tried to help explain concepts and explain ideas and explain what happened rather than just yell and scream about results and hopefully we still reflect that to this day.
1: Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much for that, Taylor. I looked up my first show on Total Soccer Show it was the 11th of March, 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not long after you mentioned that uh, Daryl started going through his treatment. So I was helping out then. Uh, five years in March. Wow. Time has flown. It
2: well. really has. It's wild yeah. to think how long it's been. I mean, since Daryl was on the show, certainly. But then that how long you all have been doing the show. And ideally, there will come a time when you all have... I, I don't know, been on it for longer than five years or six years or seven years. Like, I hope it keeps going because it's been it's been certainly stressful and a really like scary time when it transitioned and 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 Daryl wasn't with us anymore. Um, but I feel like it's been fun to go from not fun. It's been difficult, but then fun to go from having like a show with my best friend that I hung out with every single day and talked to about everything as you all Can probably guess Daryl was the person that I would just text random stuff all the time. And some of you still get that from time (laughs) to time. Um, So it's basically, I don't know, it's been like adding three good friends at a time that I, I think I really needed that and the show certainly needed that. So I'm just very grateful to that the show continues on. But then I have. Like three three people that I enjoy talking soccer with, and enjoy spending time with, and can spend ten days with, and don't want to murder,
3: as we found out in Brooklyn. That was wow, that was a pretty meaningful achievement.
1: Yeah, and if That's you do, the nicest thing been... ever said about Graham.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and if you do want to murder someone, there was that dungeon, you know, below. So. There was prime real estate to
4: do so. There's been yeah. prime real estate. Also, we I think Ryan has shown his true colors as hashtag Team Hunter. I will be hashtag team Ruffin as will Taylor. Yes. Graham, we got your back.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm just teasing. Thanks, of course. You are. Uh, yeah, I'll see uh, our, our, awesome force. I do really appreciate what we have going on here. It's been a lot of fun. Um, my To go into the background questions, I'll just quickly, pretty, uh my background in soccer started with a blog called The Spoiler back in 2006, back when blogs were a thing, when the offside was a thing as well, uh, as you mentioned there. Um, I went on to Dirty Tackle uh, and Yahoo Sports, worked for Bleacher Report, worked for a ton of other people. When I came into the tss was when there was a podcast uh, called The Goal Mouth, which by which concept was... Awesome. was Thank you, Joe. And it was 10 or 15 minutes a day, I think, where we had different hosts each day of the week. Uh, and I thought it was a really fun concept. So we we, we did one a day a week on for, for Dirty Tackle and TSS had a day as well, I believe. Uh, there was some involvement from George Qureshi, uh, from Howler. Um, and I think uh, we... Taylor didn't monetize it, basically, was how that ended. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I
2: think we we did it for a while, and, and it felt like it had reached a point where we had kind of plateaued at downloads, and then uh, advertisers were not interested. So we yeah. went our separate ways. But it, it looms large because it was my introduction to Ryan Bailey. Ryan's episodes were my favorites consistently. They always made me laugh. Uh, and it also stays in my head because Daryl had – I think the single worst pun I've ever heard, it made me like make a noise out loud. It was about different permutations of conca calf if they wanted to expand, one of which was a long dancing line called conga calf. Exactly. See that's Did you hear that noise from Ryan? That was the noise I made. That's Thank just you. wrong, I guess. Frankly, yeah, we, oh, we no. can't be doing that. No. We, we we cannot be doing that or that, Ryan.
4: I so I didn't listen to goldmouth at the time I, I came on because I, I really wasn't like a, a huge soccer fan until that point either. TSS and I've said this on the show before was a huge part of what got me into soccer. So Taylor and Daryl talking about soccer. I remember you all did. I think you all did some episode about DDA Drogba and Phoenix Rising and, and maybe that was a listener question or something and I remember listening to that and sort of like realizing wait, what, what's happening in my city and so all of those mm. things sort of coalesced into me doing this now as, as a big part of my day-to-day job and day-to-day life but I didn't listen to Goldmouth at the time because you all had been doing that earlier and it was still happening I think when I started to get into listening to TSS but I, I didn't really know what it was and I was just learning. So I went back through much more recently maybe a year or two ago. And listen to some of the old episodes because I'm a little bit sick in the head. And Ryan, it kind of stood out to me. Your episodes were really, really good. Like I think they they may have actually been the best of all of them. I think Taylor's Taylor's probably right about that. But the thing that stood out to me the most is how different you sound between now and then. Like your voice, maybe it's just the mic. Or I don't know what it is. But you sound just like different. I'd have to go back and really listen to it again. But I remember my impression being, yeah. is this the same guy? Like you still got the British accent. Maybe, hmm. you're, maybe well, the, the accent's that, yeah. mellowed. I don't know what it is exactly that changed, but it's like two different Ryan Baileys and I love them both equally.
3: Yeah, well, there was that weird period when Ryan and I worked for Bleach Report together. And Ryan, you remember yeah. you used to speak and
1: you used to that Kermit impression all the time. That, that was a little bit of that a explains
3: it. phase in your life. Yeah, that,
1: that, that explains it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but Joe's basically saying I sound more handsome now, right? Is that the yes, gist of what you were that is 100% right.
4: what I said and meant. Correct.
1: But uh, to be honest, Joe, I also, um, I, I forgot from my resume, I used to do a TV channel, a, a YouTube channel called Kick TV, which we launched back in twenty uh, late 2011. And I lo- I watched the videos from that when I first started doing it. And i sound a bit more low from London <laughs> a little than i do bit. that. I think that's what it of, is. As you say, it's be- I, spoke- I think
4: it's mellowed a bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Mellowed, yeah, it's a, uh, it's transatlantic now. Graham is what, how I describe my accent. There you go, uh, Graham. Any, any, uh, any thoughts on your background before we close this one out?
3: Uh, God knows how I ended up here or what I uh, contribute. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I I, contra- I, I counter Ryan's Englishness, so maybe there, that's as uh, good a reason as as any. Um, I used to work for Eurosport. So going all the way back, I came out of college, graduated. Weirdly. Somewhat bizarrely, my first paying job in soccer was writing for the New York Times. I'll always be thankful to Andrew Das for that, because that really kind of set me up. Um, started to write for The Guardian uh, from that point. Worked for Scottish TV as a freelance sports reporter for about five years, which is where I met my wife. And no worked way. for Eurosport for a long time as well, um, as you did for a period as well, Ryan. Uh, I did. And... I used to, over time, I kind of became their La Liga guy. So I would get like three or four La Liga games every single weekend, spread over the Saturday and Sundays. And so that's uh, kind of where Taylor ended up, Taylor Taylor and Daryl ended up getting in touch. And I would come and do a couple of La Liga episodes. And then really through COVID, and I always think of like the Euros in Euro 2020, which as we all remember happened in 2021, was kind of the period where the the four of us sort of came together. And I guess, um, yeah, the rest is history.
1: Yeah. yeah, and just to clarify, listener, um, my first job out of college in writing uh, for paid newspapers was for a local paper writing about non-league soccer. Graham went straight into the New York Times. <laughs> it's local if you to, uh... live
4: in New York. That's what, yeah. that's
3: what
1: it is.
3: I, I peaked early. I peaked in high school. Right, it was all downhill from there. <laughs>
1: Good stuff. All right, Nick, thank you very much for that question and allowing us to take a little walk down memory lane there. Listener, thank you for listening to this one. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you'd like to submit any questions and Patreon.com slash TotalSoccerShow if you'd like to support this venture and we'll give you lovely things like Discord access and bonus episodes. We promise it's fabulous. Uh, For now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much as always, my good man.
2: Thank you all very much.
1: Graham Rotham, thank you so (laughs) much. Graham, thanks. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan Bailey. (laughs) Joe Lowry, thank you, my good man. Right back at you, Ryan. And listener, thank you once again for joining us on this one. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye.